and it worked. The bank saw that this was a strategy that paid off. And so the bank was ready to invest in the next one and the next one and the next one. In the matter of three years, they 10x their profit by this strategy. Welcome to another episode of the Upflip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Freeman. And today, Kai Han Krippendorf is going to share growth hacking strategies that have helped companies generate an extra 2.5 billion dollars in revenue. Kai Han is known for simplifying difficult concepts to drive meaningful results. He's a battle-tested consultant and keynote speaker who has helped companies including BNY Mellon, Citibank, L'Oreal, Microsoft, Pfizer, and Verizon achieve their goals. We're going to discuss how to turn a business into an ecosystem that people can't live without, how to identify pricing strategies to stimulate new growth, how proximity is impacting the business world, and how small business owners with less than $1 million available for investment should respond to the changes. First, uh, Kyan, thanks for being here. Thanks for being on the show. No, thank you for having me. I, I love your show. Awesome. And so to kind of kick things off, can you just kind of briefly give our listeners your your background with business growth strategies and what, what makes you an expert whose advice they should follow? Yeah, well, I'm glad to be here because I know so many of your guests are practicing entrepreneurs. I am a practicing entrepreneur, but I haven't built a business. But what I do is I advise people on building businesses. I have primarily a business background, so I have degrees from Wharton, London Business School, Columbia Business School. I have a doctorate in economics. I've written five books. My passion has been business strategy and innovation, and I've applied it and developed a methodology from that experience that I continually deliver. You're very excited to have you because, as you said, a lot of our guests so far on the show have been, you know, in the trenches entrepreneurs, many of them starting businesses, either taking over a family business or coming into it. So I'm excited to have someone with your your educational background and attainment here to marry those two things. I hope I can contribute something. And so as somebody starts to to look at implementing a new growth strategy, what are those first steps that a business should take and and what is crucial about those first steps? I follow a framework that has kind of five steps. The first step I call imagine. And imagine really is to do five things. One is step out into the future and imagine what's the future that you don't want that creates a sense of urgency. Then stand out in this year future, like 10 years from now. Say, what are the big trends that are shaping the environment and what environment we're going to focus on? And then what do we want to be in that new environment? Step four is to then work backward from there and say, given where we want to be in 10 years, where do we need to be in one year? And then that leads to what is the fundamental strategic question that we need to answer right now in order to know we're going to get to our one year, which is going to position us for a 10 year. That's how we begin. Mm, I love that. And how does that shift it in recent years? You know, what what has the global economic landscape changed? How has it changed that impacts how companies grow and how that framework might be implemented? Great question. The main thing is that we used to do it five years in one year, what's going to look like in five years and what's going to look like in one year. But now with the uncertainty, you kind of don't know because timing is so difficult to predict. We don't know what five years is going to look like, but still we have a good idea of what 10 years is going to look like. So that's why we zoom out further to 10 years before we zoom in. Now, is this is this advice that is, you know, it feels very global and large. A lot of companies that we we talk about and deal with are very localized, or at least in a sense, they feel very localized. Is that growth strategy universal or is there a way to tailor the approach? I can answer a slightly different question, not localized, but sort of a scale of business, which I think so answers the same question. So there's one, one, you know, one, mm-hmm. one company that I'm working with, and they sell pet food, natural pet food. They've got a small website, you know, one and a half people running this website. But the zooming out is still helpful, right? Zooming out 10 years, what do we know? We know that pets are going to continually be more important because uh, birth rates are coming down. People are replacing the affection they give to uh, children for pets. 
And we know there's a growing trend towards kind of environmentalism and wanting to create a sustainable environment for us and our pets. And so that gives you kind of a fairly clear picture of what the future of pets will look like, at least in developing countries in 10 years. And so but we're talking about very small business. But that kind of insight is the kind of insight that allows an entrepreneur to move when larger companies won't move. And I think that's the big advantage to, to, to smaller companies, that they, they, can, they can act with greater agility on the obvious. That's a that's a really great point uh, that you bring up. You know, it's finding those those core values and mission, and like what are you focused on as a as a smaller company, and how can you pivot in that way? Um, and I guess how does a company understanding who it is factor into all of this thinking? Yeah, who a company is. So in, in my framework, I'm always putting everything into these five steps. So this is step three in the ideation process of creating of strategic um, hypotheses. I think there are 36 patterns. And one of those patterns really speaks to what business are we in? Uh, Peter Drucker, arguably the most uh, influential management thinker of all time, he said that strategy is simply the answer to the question, what business are we in? And so it's really important to think about what business you're in. Starbucks never thought of themselves as in the coffee business. They thought of themselves in the people business. Zappos never thought of themselves in the shoe business. They thought of themselves in the customer service business. And so when you can shift what you and your people think the business is that they are in, it starts changing the choices that they see and they choose. And that can be a very powerful source of ongoing competitive advantage. And as those those make those, are there like certain industries that translate into different, like, you know, the shoe business into the customer service business, Amazon becoming the everything store? How does somebody start to think about, okay, well, I'm not actually in the shoe business, I'm in customer service? Um, I think it helps to look at the industry and look at what is broken in the industry. If you were like entering as a disruptor, because sometimes we're already in the business, you're kind of thinking from the frame of the way that people think about the business who are already in the business. But think about if you just entered and you said you were a startup, and you're looking at what is broken in this industry and what could we solve for? A framework that I like to use is these eight P's. So um, I'll quickly go through the positioning, product, price, placement, promotion, processes, physical experience, and people. And in any, any industry, in any company, you can choose that as a checklist and go through and say, where is something broken in the industry or in the company that if we focused on it, we could have a leap in competitive advantage? Yeah, you just you just brought up disruption. So I, I'd love to kind of focus in on that a little bit because it is it is kind of a buzzword uh, and can feel like a nebulous concept, but could you define disruption and how a business might achieve it? See, I, disrupt, I think disruption is one permutation of a bigger, more important concept, but disruption is you attack a customer segment that your competitors view as inferior or, sorry, is that your competitors view as not valuable, and you provide them a product or service that your competitors view as inferior. And because you're a stealing a customer they don't want with a product that they don't think is really worth responding to, they let you have it. That creates a beachhead that lets you to start learning and then you scale from there. But it is one example of a broader concept, which I call the fourth option, which is there are, when people start looking at a problem for a long time, they start to settle on a set set of options. Uh, like I've been in this industry for 20 years. What we need to do is one, two, three. I've solved this problem before. What we need to do is A, B, and C. And what great innovators do is they identify as those as moments where people have stopped thinking and they look for a fourth option. 
Blue ocean strategy is a, another popular, you know, a concept and term. And I am, I'm, I've become good friends with one of the authors, and I, I absolutely respect it. That that is another version of a fourth option, which is let's atar- let's target a, a customer that our competitors don't even consider to be a customer, and we will bring them into the market. Uh, Twenty five hundred years ago, Sun Tzu, the, uh, the Chinese general, wrote the art of war. He had a term that was taking hold, which is you attack your enemy and there is no bloodshed. They they let you take them whole. There's no loss. See, I think this is one strategic concept. It's been around for millennia. You know, the the latest buzz term for it is disruptive innovation or disruption. And the definition I gave you is, I think, the definition that Clayton Christensen proposed. It has been bastardized a bit, but I think we need to like not necessarily just look at the language, but look at the core concept is you do something that your competitors will not respond effectively to. And it's usually not because they can't, but because they won't. Is this something that only newer companies can can take advantage of? Or is even if somebody's been in the marketplace for, you know, 10, 15 years, is this something that they can reevaluate what their company's doing and say, okay, this is the way we're actually going to grow from this plateau that we find ourselves on? Absolutely existing incumbent companies can. And most of my work is with existing incumbent companies. Um actually my research shows that 70% of society's most impactful innovations have not come from entrepreneurs. They have actually come from established companies and employees in established companies. So we, we we do like to celebrate the entrepreneur, and I'm an entrepreneur, and I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs, and I love entrepreneurs. But to think that you have to be a new entrant to think this way is inconsistent with history. Actually, yes, you can, and you should think this way if you are an established company. Yeah, and I think that's that's also particularly important and dovetails nicely with, you know, the concept of purchasing into a business as well, like that you're, you know, you're, you've come into this marketplace, you've bought this business, and now you need to, you know, do something with your investment. Uh, how are you going to grow it? You got to act like a new company, even though there is this established history. Yes, absolutely. I think it's so smart to acquire a company that already has a business model that's working. It gives you a number of assets, it gives you scale. And then if you take that AP framework, you know, what I see, what, what, what I suggest my clients do when I work with them is let's look across the business model again, positioning. What's our brand look like? What customers do we serve? What are our pricing models? How do we place or distribute? What are our processes, physical experience, positioning, you know, across all of APs, our people policies. Who do we hire? How do we organize? What's your incentive structure be? What's your values be? And all of those eight are doors to look through and look down the corridor and say, is there something that I can do differently? Have my competitors grown entrenched with one way of doing things or three way of doing things. And therefore, what is my fourth option? And you know, my research shows that if you can come up with a fourth option in just two of those things with a 40% correlation, you'll grow faster and be more profitable than your competitor. That's that, Those are incredible numbers um, just to kind of achieve. And I, I kind of want to Focus in over on on to some growth concepts um, and what might be defined as organic internal growth and how that concept might be different from how businesses thought about growth and scaling in the past. If you can produce a dollar of organic internal growth, that is worth 10 times as much as if you acquire a dollar of external growth in the market. And so your ability to produce organic growth is valuable because not only does it cost you less and it's less risky, but it also signals to the market that you have the capability to create the next dollar and the next dollar. That's one reason why organic growth is so 
critical. And I just want to point out for our listeners, uh, those of you who want a little bit more about uh, organic growth, check out our past interview with Mike Andes, who scaled his business to, to seven figures. You can find that both in our podcast feed, and then we've also got it on on our YouTube channel as well when we check in with Mike, uh, upflip.com on YouTube. So make sure to check that out. And then so, Kaihan, uh, as we look at growth, are there any tools or software um obviously there are, there are, i presume you have some, you have some systems that you might recommend that people start using to help them launch that new growth strategy yeah uh, i think there are at least three really helpful execution tools um I mean, you guys have tools, um, the systems, I wouldn't call them tools uh, as much as software tools, but rather I would call them systems, I guess, for execution. And you know, a lot of our clients use either something called scaling up, they use something called metronome, or they use something called EOS, entrepreneurial operating system. And these are all ways for you to take the key elements that you need once you've had a clarified strategy. What are our com- competitive advantages? What are our priorities? What are our goals? Who are the responsibilities? What are our metrics, et cetera? And put them into a system where you can kind of like track them and manage to them and uh, apply your and, and, and assign your resources and effort to the right things. What I have as a tool is really this Outthinker process is really a a system to make sure that what you plug into your execution machine is truly disruptive and is not a me too strategy. Mm. Can you can you go in a little bit more detail about that, about how that works and how why that's important? So let's say you're looking at the beginning of the year and you're thinking, okay, what should my priorities be? We, we can't focus on 15 things. We're going to focus on five things. And if you just look at empty boxes, what you're going to think about is, okay, let's get a little more efficient. Let's spend, take some of that savings. Let's invest it in marketing and sales. And let's add a new feature to our product. Most strategies are some version of that. But if you think about like, what would Elon Musk put in those five things, they would probably look very different. So how do you step out? That's why I call it out thinking. How do you step out to make sure that what you put in is very different? And so these five steps are one, imagine, which I, which I went through at the beginning. Step in the future and imagine what, what, what could possibly the future look like and who do you want to be in that future? Dissect is what I talked about, the eight Ps. Let's look down the business model, positioning, product, price, place, promotion, processes, physical experience. What are the leverage points that we should really focus on? And then expand, which is, for example, what business are we in? is one of these 36 patterns, applying these different patterns, 36 patterns, to generate really unorthodox strategies. And then to analyze is taking all of the ideas, and typically in this process, you end up with um, 100 to 200 possible strategic um, growth ideas. And you, you narrow them and you say, what's easy, what's difficult, and what's high and what's low impact? And the beautiful, like the simplicity of that is simply that the, the difficult low impact ideas, those are wastes of time. We're going to get rid of those. The easy, low-impact ideas are tactics. We're going to we're just going to go do them and delegate them, execute and get them done. The easy, high-impact ideas are winning moves. Um, but where we often fail to put really disruptive things into the our execution uh, methodology is that the fourth option, the disruptive idea, the thing that will make our competitors laugh at us and ignore us are the difficult high impact ideas. And I call those crazy ideas. You always want to have of those five things that you're going to plug in to your execution rhythm. You want to have at least one that appears to be a crazy idea. And then the final step is sell, which is aligning your organization so that your employees and your board members and your and your senior team understand or excited about the strategy. So IDEAS is ideas. So um, that you know, I put that into the framework just to make it easy to remember. Yeah, and I so I, I kind of want to focus on that uh, the concept of a, the crazy. One of them should be a crazy idea. And how do you 
you start down the path towards that idea? How do you qualify that? And when do you like, are like, okay, maybe we need to back off of this idea? How do you kind of, when you're on that journey, how do you keep assessing if this is the thing to chase? So first you decide that it's something that you want to start chasing. And the first step there is to take the idea and break down, break it down and say, what are the barriers that make this look really difficult? And then how can we remove those barriers? Um, if, for example, there's one client that applied this. They're actually a client of one of our coaches. I didn't work with them directly, but they sell windows. And their issue, the growth issue was that the people that they sold windows through, the retailers, they didn't want to just offer one type of window because they didn't want to be dependent on one supplier. So they had this crazy idea what if we started buying retailers? Now, the problem is that retailers have as much revenue as this company does, and, uh, and and they don't want to operate them. And so they kind of broke it down. Well, what are the issues? We don't have the money to buy them. We don't want to operate them. And I don't know what the third one was. And then we went through each of those and said, how could we remove each of those? Don't have the money to buy them. Well, could we get financing? Um, would there be a, a, a backer um, that would support this kind of strategy. And then we don't want to operate them. Could we find people who just want to cash out, but they want to keep running their business so we don't have to run them? So they implemented this and they started, they, they bought one of these retailers and it worked. The bank saw that this was a strategy that paid off. And so the bank was ready to invest in the next one and the next one and the next one. In the matter of three years, they 10x their, their profit by this strategy. So the first step is to identify what are the things that must be true and then look at can we make those things true. But as you execute it, you still have other things that you don't know if they're true yet. But if you can be very explicit about the hypotheses that, or the sub-hypotheses that your hypothesis this is a good idea depends on and be tracking those explicitly, then you can more quickly identify when it's time to kill the idea and move on to the next idea. What I really love about that example is that it was a it was a window company and that kind of feels like those businesses that don't feel overly scalable that there's you know a certain amount of of growth that you can do um on that level and so I think that 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 I would assume is one of the common obstacles that impede a lot of companies growth is that they just assume big growth isn't for them but I would love to hear your your thoughts on what what are some other common obstacles that impede a company's growth? The most common obstacles are, one, is that you don't think the future is going to change a lot. And what you see is that you know, companies that do create amazing growth, they, they, they think the future is going to change. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this company, PillPack, created by a second generation pharmacist. He was working at his dad's pharmacy and he thought, this is messed up because people with multiple prescriptions have a terrible experience at the drugstore. They take multiple trips, they have multiple bottles, they can't open them, they're confused, compliance is low. And so, you know, you wouldn't think that you could scale a pharmacy, right? Because you just have to buy a whole bunch of pharmacies. And he said, well, what should the future of prescription drug delivery look like? So he stepped out into the future and he said, well, you wouldn't leave home. First of all, they could send to you and, and they wouldn't get sent in bottles based off the manufacturer. I don't care who manufactured it. What I care about is what do I have to take at 8 a.m. on Monday? So they should become little packets that say 8 a.m. on Monday. These are the three pills you have to take. So he starts building this business, finds a partner, gets funding, scrappy, figures out the operations, sort of works on FDA approval, gets approval in 48 states. He's operating this and he sells it to Amazon for a billion dollars after six years. So that's an interesting way to scale a pharmacy, Right. Yeah, definitely. Certainly not on the radar of a lot of pharmacists, perhaps. That's, that's right. 
and it, yeah, and it probably wasn't even the radar of, of Amazon and, and, or CVS, or maybe it was, but they didn't move on it. Often because we think that the future is going to take a long time to get here, but increasingly the future is getting here more quickly because we're starting to see an exponential change in the, well, ex- an exponential shift in the rate of change. And things that used to take 10 years are now going to happen in three years. And COVID just accelerated a lot of that. But there are a lot of these exponential technologies that are improving or are doubling in improvement rather than in, in a linear form improving. 3D printing, blockchain adoption, crypto adoption, digital delivery, drones. There, there are a whole bunch of technologies that are going to create a future that looks radically different from today and create that much more quickly than we expect. So that's a that's one of these five that are the big barriers is what I call playing for the next battleground. Yeah, I think that's uh, I'm glad you mentioned COVID uh, because I I do want to follow up on that in that uh, you know thinking about companies that were thinking ten years into the future, uh, then COVID happened, which obviously nobody saw coming. At least you know maybe some people saw it sooner than other people saw it coming, but certainly not uh, if you'd ask somebody five years ago if this was going to happen in this way. And here we are two years or so into the pandemic, still dealing with it and dealing with new disruptions. So how does somebody, one, I think you've laid out a great framework of how somebody can be prepared for disruptions, can be prepared to move and take advantage of opportunities that they see. But how does somebody stay on track in the middle of a major disruption that they maybe didn't foresee? I don't have the perfect answer, but a couple things. One is, if in the beginning of the year, you go through this process and you have 100 ideas, you prioritize them, you've chosen to focus on five. You now have a backlog of 96 ideas. And so while your competitors are spinning around trying to figure out, okay, what can we do differently? You have this backlog. It looks almost like a scrum board, you know, where you have like, um, th- you know, think things that you're going to do, but you're not doing yet, you just go back there and you've already thought of these ideas. And you're like, aha, now is the time to pick up this idea of distributing coaching services directly to consumers by um, through, through digital means rather than in person. Now's the right time to do that, right? So having those already saves you the think time and allows you to operate more quickly. The second thing I say is like, there's a great framework, it's not mine, The Three Horizons of Growth. Uh, it's in a book uh, called the alchemy of growth. And basically says there are three horizons that you want to have initiatives against. One is you want to have core initiatives, things that are going to defend and protect the core business. The next are new things, things that you are launching and scaling, but they're not scaled. Maybe they're not profitable yet. And then things that you do now that create option value that may or may not prove out to be valuable in the future. But if you don't do them now, you won't have that option in the future. And what you'll see is in an, in, a, in a time of, of less change, you spend about 70% on core, 20% on new, 10% on options. And when we are facing uncertainty, you just need to rebalance that. You're going to spend maybe 50% on core, 30% on you, 20% on options. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'd like to kind of shift shift gears a little bit, I guess, um, but maybe not so much as I, you know, as I say that. Uh, but I want to talk about the observe step in the strategy cycle. And how can a how can a business best spot those emerging changes before their competition? So how could someone have been, uh, you know, COVID might not be a great example, but how can somebody be early uh, to to some to a disruption portion of the cycle and in that growth strategy. Great. So I think when you say observe, what comes to mind is something called the OODA loop: observe, orient, decide, and act. And I've listened to a number of your episodes. I don't know if you've ever had someone talk about agile or lean or Scrum. Um, have you? 
Well, we've had uh, one one lean, someone come in and talk about lean, but that's uh, that's about it. But yeah, we'd love to, to revisit here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so lean, agile, Scrum, it, they all um, originate from a framework called UDA, Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. It was created by a uh, a fighter pilot named John Boyd. He was a squadron commander. He tra- a trainer. He trained a squadron to have a t- ten to one kill ratio over the uh, opponent during the Korean War. And uh, he was also known as the as the sixty second Boyd. If he got in the air with you within sixty seconds, he had to be lost in the sight. And he never lost his bet. And when he retired, the military asked him to lay out his framework, and he came out with this framework that is observe, orient, decide, and act. The idea is that you can observe your environment, orient yourself to what's happening, make it decision, take action on that decision, and then observe the result of that decision. If you can do that faster than your enemy or your competition, then you will cycle faster and eventually your competitor will uh, get too confused and won't be able to keep up. And the key step is that observe to orient. And the issue with observe to orient is that we look at these trends and we don't put them together in our heads. We think that they exist as three different things. Oh, my daughter just came home and she talked about this new app. Oh, I went to my dentist and um, I don't know, He's they're using this new device and I just heard the interest rates are rising. They sound like three different things. But what you want to do is think about how can I put those together? Um, the way John Boyd put it was, if you imagine a ski, some skis, and then you imagine um, a handlebar of a bicycle, and then you imagine treads off of a tank, they seem like three different things. But if you put them together, then what you have is a snowmobile. So it is worth taking the time in your strategy process or just any time during the day is think about what the major trends are. Circle the three that are the big ones and then put them together and say, imagine what a customer scenario would look like when all of these three things are true. When 3D printing meets cultured meat meets five-minute delivery at home, you know, what, what does that look like? Maybe we have pop-up restaurants that are growing meat and 3D printing them into bacon that gets delivered to your home in five minutes in the morning. I'm just making this up, right? But it is important to take those things that seem like different things and put them together as one thing. Mm. And so so is that based on, is that just observing the world or is it observing competition specifically or both? It's both. Um, I think that like, we used to be very focused on competition. Thanks to Amazon, we've become very focused on the customer and say, no, let's ignore the competition. I think we're shifting to a world in which we're focused more on the employee. It is observing all of those things. I like really like to look, observe at least, there's nine different things, but the four big ones are social demographic shifts, that's both for customers and for employees, new technologies, regulatory shifts, and macroeconomic changes. And having an idea of what the big trends are in those four buckets, that's key. I like looking at the competition. I don't do it that much only because often when my clients look at the competition, what they do is, how can we do the same thing? How can we create the Uber? How can we create the Airbnb? I'm a hotel chain. How do I create the Airbnb? And when you copy the competition, the issue is you're going to disrupt yourself and not them, right? Because you're doing something that's not natural for you, but it's natural for them. So they already know how to do it. Um, and so that, that, that that's the danger of looking at the competition. But if you're willing to actually say, okay, I'm looking at the competition, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say, how can I achieve what they're doing, but do it my way? Then that's the ultimate thing because you're not disrupting yourself, but you're disrupting them. How are you staying on top of those trends? What what strategies or tools do you use? Like how much of your day does it take up? What's the process for that you might recommend to somebody to start staying on top of those trends in the world? 
Well, at the beginning of the year, you know, what you can do is you can just have your meeting. You can take the key trends. You can give them, hand them out to some of your staff and say, hey, I'd like to give you, you to give me a report on this trend. You'd be in that report on that trend. And that kind of gives you a basis of understanding of what the world looks like now. And then for each of that, you say, um, what could happen this year that if it happened, it would change our assessment of this trend? So say 3D printing, I'm working with a company that imports like food of a certain ingredient and then packages it in a high into higher value things and then sends it. If you go to a grocery store, you might find a box of these things and you might buy it in the frozen section. And so what I'm trying to push them on is 3D printing of food. And so it is a trend that we're following. And what we said is if we start, if we see someone develop a paste for 3D printing that uses an ingredient similar to our ingredient, then we're going to be ready to move quickly. So we're just sort of like looking for what are the signs that this trend is going to happen more quickly. That means 3D printing and, and their opportunity in 3D printing is going to happen this year and not in five years. Oh, okay. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And is there any data or metrics that people should be tracking in business trends? And are those, is everything industry specific or are there, you know, universal leading indicators that leaders should pay attention to? That's a great question. Um, I feel like you're asking for a particular answer, but I don't think so. But first of all, I would say, no, you should not be just looking in your industry. Absolutely not. That that makes that that, that creates the risk of you having a very myopic monitoring of what is happening. There are trends, both behavioral trends and techno- specifically technology trends that are shifting across industries. And so often these trends will hit one industry before they hit yours. And if you are not tracking the trends that might hit yours, that when they hit other industries, you won't see them coming or you won't see what the smart or dumb ways are to you know, react to them. I, I can't think of any universal metrics that you should be tracking. And, you know, along along these lines, and I think we've we've demonstrated it and you've demonstrated it really well in the way you've answered the last few questions. There's more data out there than ever before. And how can leaders cut through a lot of the noise and make sense of information to create a viable strategy? Um, I think the two kind of strategic uh, choices, right? One is something that you've done before, has been done before. And you're pretty sure that you know it works because you've seen that other people um, other other people have done it. You know, one of the advantages of buying an established business is that you, you kind of know what works, and, and and so there you can track data, existing data, and start looking for anomalies, and then decide what is a hypothesis of what's happening. Uh, but I mostly live in the new strategies, and there the data I find rarely gives you the breakthrough idea. Rather, you develop the breakthrough idea as a hypothesis, and then you look at what data would indicate that now is the right time for us to launch this. You know, like I got to interview Elon Musk um, soon after he launched SpaceX, and I asked him, um, so you, you sold PayPal, you had $150 million for yourself, and you decided to invest all in that, building rocket ships. And I asked him why. He said, well, I just think the future in a future in which anyone could shoot stuff into space is more exciting than one in which only the government can. And it sounds like a pretty risky premise to bet your wealth on. So I asked him about that, you know, to walk me through that. And he said, well, in the future, I know that we're going to be interplanetary species. And the problem is that we, the, the, the first challenge for us getting there is that it costs too much to build and launch a rocket ship. But he felt, because he was kind of 
he, he started looking at what the cost is to build and launch a rocket ship that he felt that now, because of the configuration of the industry, it was now going to be possible for you to manufacture a rocket ship on your own without having to plug into the whole supply chain, which creates this inefficiency. And when you manufacture on your own, you have greater control and you can bring costs down and then create a, a rocket ship that is competitive. And then, then the government will pri um, privatize it. So a lot of of his innovations, I think a lot of innovations, are looking at the cost curve of something. And right now it costs a lot, and it's cost a lot for a long time, but when you start seeing the cost curve come down, usually because of, of either like a, not a temporary change in the raw inputs, but because of a structural change in the industry, and you start seeing that we're, we're coming down in costs, and that when that continues, that we're on the top of a slide and then we're sliding down in the cost, then that will suddenly open up a new market. So knowing that when costs of certain things come down, we're able to do new things and then tracking those costs is, is, is one thing to track. So I want to lay out a, a scenario. Uh, let's say a leader has the right data and has developed a viable, innovative, strategic shift. But the other decision makers in the company are change resistant. You know, not everybody has the the luxuries of Elon Musk to make more or less decisions on their own. And so what advice would you give to that leader to convince the other decision makers that an out-of-the-box approach is a viable idea? Um, I mean, the first, first thing I do is... Uh assess whether you do need to convince everyone. I guess I get, first of all, do your best to convince them, right? And you do that by identifying who are the early adopters of the idea. Just like you have an external adoption curve, you have an internal adoption curve. Who are the early adopters of the idea? Who are the proponents? Who are the first users? And then who are the detractors? Now, there are two different types of detractors. There are detractors in your team or in your organization who are negative detractors. They are never going to buy into the idea. There are other detractors who are positive detractors, who have reasonable reasons to be concerned about the impact this idea would have on the company. And making that distinction is really key. Because then what you do is with the positive distractors, you go to them early and you understand what their concerns are, being open to the idea that there are flaws in your idea and talking to them will allow you to improve your idea. But there still will be negative detractors. And those negative detractors, unfortunately, you know, by definition, are never going to be on board. And so what you do is you isolate the idea from them so they are no longer a decision maker. You no longer need their support. Um, there's some research that shows that um, what you should do is create an ambidextrous organization where you have one part of your organization that is defending and protecting the core business and one that is looking for new things. Think about as the first group is uh, defending the fortress and the other one is sailing the ships looking for new territory. And then at the very top layer, you have your close management team that can go between those two, get the, get the mental flexibility to go between the two. But it may be that you need to separate your organization and not create a situation where you don't need the support of the fortress people or the negative detractors. Yeah. Uh, can you can you explain what it means for business to have a clear uh, aspiration and how that's similar to and different from goal setting? Interesting. So the world word aspiration um, can mean two things. It can mean either the achievement of like a long term goal or it can mean a purpose or a mission. Now, I think mission and vision are, you know, if you say potato, I say potato, like it's a little bit of just semantics. Um, but whatever you call it, there is usually two things. Like it's one thing that you exist for and you never fully achieve it. It's the reason you wake up every morning. And then there's something I call it vision. 
that you achieve. It's in five or 10 years. It's your big, hairy, audacious goal is what some people might call it. And so I think it's really important to have both and not confuse fuse those two. Um, for example, there's a company that I really admire, Flatiron Health, and created by two ex-Googlers. Um, they quit and they're looking for something to do. And one of them has a nephew who unfortunately gets cancer. And he realizes that the oncology kind of world is broken. Data is uh, you know, siloed. And even doctors can't access the data to know what treatment you are um, that they've delivered to you, what, what they did, and so what, what, the, what, the, what the result was. And so they created this company um, to improve the lives of every patient, uh, I don't know, so, something like, you know, from the data of treatment, something like that. So they have this purpose, which is improve the lives, right? So that's an ongoing mission. But they also have a vision, which is that the FDA will start looking at practice data to make decisions about you know, what regulations to, to implement. So that's a vision that's achieved. They go to one oncologist and say, we're going to offer you the software. We're going to license it to you. It's going to let you do all this stuff to run your practice. But we're going to observe your data, and we're going to give you feedback on what's working. And then they go to the next oncologist and say, we're going to give you the same deal as that oncologist, but we're going to give you feedback, not only what you're doing, but also what the other doctor's doing so we can improve the impact, the results of your, um, the outcomes of your, of your practices. So you know, that oncologist jumps on board and they roll up 2000 oncologists and they have this data now and they work with the FDA to change the way the FDA works so that FDA will actually look at this data and not only uh, blind studies. Anyway, you know, seven years later, they sell the company for $2.1 billion to Roche Pharmaceuticals. Um, that's both a point of know what business you're in. We're a data company. We're in a software company. But also of the power of having a purpose that's never achieved, that wakes you up every morning. But also having a big vision. You know, FDA will change the way it does things. And um, having both of those work together. So, so if a successful growth strategy is the, you know, merging of that purpose with vision, and along with the practical logistics of making the change happen, what are your top strategies for bringing that creative new growth approach into the real world? It's helpful to think about that strategy as like falling into five phases. So first, when you've come up with it in words, it it's just words, right? Then you reach this phase that's really tough, which is where you're putting the pieces in place. It's kind of like watching a tree grow. A lot of energy is going into it, but you're not producing results, you're not producing a lot of revenue or, or growth or profit. And then there's the breakout phase where finally it takes off. Then there is the consolidation phase where you've achieved the market share you want and you want to protect it. You want to build economies of scale. You want to achieve customer captivity, lock in resources. And then the final phase is like when you realize that the strategy needs to be abandoned and you need to destroy it. So what I think the right thing to do is to A, put in the metrics that will tell us whether we are going to get through phase two to phase three from doing the hard work to actually having breakout. And what are the key things that must be true and constantly track those and be ready to shift your strategy if it turns out that the market doesn't want it. Next is to identify like, what, what are the capabilities that we need and the resources we need and the, and the talent we need and what organizational structure we need and, 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 and all of that, those, those foundational things. And then put in place uh, an execution rhythm and you're using maybe one of those um, execution frameworks that I talked about at the beginning. And one of the strategies you, su you suggest in your 36 stratagems guide is to partner with someone unexpected. How can business leaders identify which competitors might be good collaborators or what other collaborators they might seek out? And what advice do you have on forming those partnerships? 
Yeah. I think the, the, the best thing to do is say, uh, who else benefits if I win? If you step out and you imagine that you have achieved that 10-year goal, that big, hairy, audacious goal, whatever that is, and you look around and you say, who else is benefiting by us having achieved that? Then those all become partners um, that maybe are not obvious. Maybe they're not even in your industry. They're not in your radar, but they become partners in your shared vision if you can align them to that vision. As for what competitors carry you with, I, I, that, that requires you kind of look at you know, each competitor understanding what their motivations are, also who their investors are. Um, but I think the real opportunity is to create that ecosystem that of, of players who may not be obviously part of this ecosystem, but if you step out and say, who else benefits by win, then you kind of reveal who those people are. Another strategy that stuck out to me is exchanging a brick for a jade. Can you explain a bit what that means and share some advice on how to determine the relative value of products or ideas? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Exchange a brick for a jade you know, basically says you give up something that you consider of low value, usually because it doesn't cost you a lot to produce, and you exchange it for something of high value. This is the razor blade strategy. This is you are selling razor blades at a loss or at low cost. In exchange, you have someone there who needs to buy. Sorry, you're playing razors at a low cost or a loss. In exchange, you have someone who is committed to buying razor blades for you. This is Xbox or PlayStation losing money on its consoles to make money from the, um, the the video. So what what to do there is to look around and say where is something that uh, something I can exchange usually with a customer and usually for customer captivity that I'm not thinking of as valuable because it already exists, um, but they would find valuable. So one, one finance company that I work with, they they were I mean, a few years ago. They 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 finance basically computer systems. And they were like, how can we increase our market share? Um, and what they realized is that they had information about when people bought computers who were past clients. And so what they said was, this is valuable to the, so there, there are people who sell the computers and then they suggest how they are financed. And so they, so they went to these people and said, we're going to create this program. We're going to have like a silver, gold, um, platinum level, depending on how many, how much business you bring us. And with higher or you know, at higher levels, we're going to give you more valuable leads and say, here's a company who bought this system seven years ago. They probably need a replacement and that will improve your returns. But then we want you to refer us, you know, and, and that tripled their business in, in a year. Um, so that's an example of this exchanging a brick for a jade. A lot of what we've uh, talked about deals with a lot of high high end decision making, high high up in leadership making those decisions. Uh, once leadership has decided on that new approach, what is the process for implementing that change at the employee level, and how do you get buy in from the whole from the company top to bottom to make those changes? Mm, yeah, I mean that's a I mean, that that change management corporate communication strategy. You know, is is you know, that that's a big. That's a big thing. One thing to do is what I talked about already before is kind of look at the internal adoption curve, do this, do the analysis of who's on board, who's not going to be on board, who could we convince, and be strategic about getting the early adopters in early, addressing the late adopters. If you if you work the tails, then the middle will just go the way you you want it to go. But the other thing is to try to take your strategy and really super simplify it because humans can only remember seven plus or minus two things at once. And when your strategy has five things. 
And they're thinking about, I got to pick up the groceries. I have to um, call this uh, client back. You know, they, they don't have enough room to keep the strategy. Less than 40% of mid-level managers can, re- can remember even two of their company's top strategic priorities. So it's very helpful to take that strategy and bring it down, super simplify it into one thing. For example, Best Buy's strategy against Amazon, which was successful, they summarized it into Renew Blue. Renew Blue, it it rhymes, it's easy to tell, and what it symbolizes is that our advantage is the people in blue shirts. We have people who know technology, Amazon doesn't. So then there are a whole bunch of things that fall off that. So what we want to do is just like branding a product, right? You know, you go when you think of Volvo, you think safety. When you think of BMW, you think of performance. Now, when you go to the Volvo dealership, you know, you find out, oh wow, this is also high performance, it's also high technology, also luxurious. But they don't advertise those things. They advertise safety. They anchor one thing in the customer's mind. Your customers now are your employees, and you need to take the same marketing approach and anchor your strategy as one thing that, when it's triggered, unlocks all the other things that uh, are priorities. Then after, after implementing that new growth strategy, how should leaders evaluate its success to refine their approach moving forward? And what kind of feedback should they be collecting? And how should they go about doing so? There, there are you know, things that we've done. There are the results of things that we've done. And then there are the reactions. Sorry, so there are things we've done. There are the reaction things we've done, and then the results of things we've done. So things we've done are like things that are easy to measure, which is can ha, have we implemented this in time? Have we sold this much? Have we achieved this run rate? Have we achieved this efficiency rate? And so you know you go through and you look from the different perspectives. What are the operational perspective? What are the people perspective? What is the financial perspective? What's the customer perspective? And lay out what are the things that are directly measurable. Then there's the reaction. So the reaction is either with customers or competitors. There could be other stakeholders, especially if you're operating in a, an ecosystem, and look at what customer reactions are. So the, you know NPS scores, for example, doing competitive tracking and seeing what your competitors, what you can see competitors doing, what regulators are doing, what your partners are doing, right? And so that, that that's the reaction. But all, you know, all, and then and then that leads to the, to, to the outcome. So the outcomes are you know, market share and value and things like that. So, you know, it's, 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 I mean, in, in my experience, I don't, I don't know if there's a, a magic wand here, but you go through, you come up with a bunch of metrics. Usually it's too many metrics. You narrow them down, you cut them down. You say, if A depends on B, then I don't need to measure B. I'll just measure A, um, for example. And you narrow it down to a set of metrics, maybe like 15 metrics that you're tracking and you regularly track them. Um, some of those metrics are fast moving, so you track them weekly. Some of them are slower moving, you track them monthly. And then you, when you notice you're off track, then you begin the cycle again. You say, this is not headed where we want to head, it, head. Let's go through ideas. Imagine what do we want, dissect, what should we focus on, expand what are our options, analyze which new options should we choose, sell, let's realign the organization, which is basically the OODA loop. You're observing, orient, deciding, and acting, and you're trying to do that really quickly. I know I'm not talking very kind of hypothetically, but um, um, theor- theoretically here, but that, that's what we need to do. Sit down, lay out all the possible metrics from all the perspective, decide which ones, and then track and be ready to react. And then what if the growth strategy fails? How do the businesses and the leaders recover from mistakes and minimize the long-term damage and impact? I mean, a couple of things. I mean, for, first is Sun Tzu's 
So you set, you set multiple traps. So if the if your enemy doesn't step into one, they back into another. So it's important to, when you choose your strategic priorities that you create redundancy. So you have multiple strategies, and if one fails, the other one will succeed. You also need to make sure that your strategies add up to your goal, and you also need to make sure that you're not taking on too much, that you, you're not spreading your your bandwidth or resources too thin. It's kind of a, a magic to do that. But if you cre- if you create redundancy, then if the strategy is starting to fail, you have another one. Also, if you have multiple strategies, it gives you the guts to re- to pivot again because you have something else to turn in to turn to. Um, it, was, it was in another podcast I heard this analogy, which was um, there are marathon runners, and many people think being an entrepreneur is like being a marathon runner. I'm going to run. Till I'm going to break through all the pain and just finish this race. But a better approach is probably Indiana Jones. He's adjusting and swinging. He's still going to get to his goal, but he's tacking, um, you know, along the way. So, you know, have tracking leading indicators gives you the early observation. Having multiple strategies gives you other things that will pay off. And then if really those things aren't going to pay off, you have your backlog of other strategies to go back to those 100 or 96 um, other strategies and pick a different one. I suppose the flip side of that question here is uh, what if it's wildly successful? How do leaders ward off complacency after a big success? Yeah, I think, you know, that going back to that first step and imagine is you go back and you look at the mess. What's the undesirable realistic future if we continue on our current path? Half of your people are motivated by moving away from things. And so if they're starting to get complacent, we want to give them something to move away from. We want to get them to raise the bar. Um, One e-commerce company I work with, they've had a great success in the last um, two years. Um, And I was in a meeting with them, kind of um, helping them set their new strategy. And, you know, the CEO said, look, it's great. It's great that that we grew from 10 million to 15 million. But here's what I want. I want us to be a $200 million company. And even then, we're small relative to our competitors. What does that look like? That creates the urgency to then think differently. Mm, I love that. Um, I've got one last question for you. But before I do that, I just want to give you a chance to to let our listeners know where they can find you and where they can uh, learn more about all this, all this great information that you've offered here and in a wider form. Oh, well, thank you very much. I would suggest you go to kaihan.net, K-A-I-H-A-N.net. Um, also encourage you to listen to my podcast as well, which is Outthinkers. All right. So then the final question, uh, Kaihan, is uh, what's your favorite business book? You've dropped you've dropped in a lot of great titles throughout this interview. And so I'm curious what your answer is going to be for your favorite business book, which is the, our standard final question here on this podcast. Oh, my gosh. But by far, I would say my favorite business book is one that's not well known. It's called... Competition Demystified by Bruce Greenwald. And it introduces a really compelling framework to create competitive advantage. If you want something a little bit fresher, there is one of his colleagues wrote a book that it kind of takes his model and applies it to platform businesses. And it is The Platform Delusion by Jonathan Nee. Either one of those two, which are rooted in the same framework, my two favorite books. Awesome. Well, Kaihan, thank you so much again for joining us on this episode of the Upflip Podcast. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. And to all of our listeners out there, make sure you check out the Upflip blog, upflip.com slash blog. Check us out on YouTube, Upflip, and check out past episodes of this show. And to join us here next week, where we'll have even more great information featuring entrepreneurs and business leaders out there. Kaihan, once again, thank you so much and have a great week. 